Well, I guess uh, to look at Romans chapter 5 tonight, as I read uh, a little earlier on, uh, it's a terrific uh, chapter. Uh, the whole book of Romans is terrific in actual fact. When you read through it, it's such a declaration and description to us of what the gospel is all about. And uh, this chapter in particular reveals the amazing facts of uh, what has taken place in this world and what will take place in the future and what is going to be the hope of all Christians uh, as we look to uh, see what God will do when Jesus himself comes in all his glory. And uh, if we were to look at this chapter, I don't know, you know how much you know about this chapter, but uh, it is really a declaration of uh, paradise lost and regained, as John Milton would have said. And it describes to us the situation in which we find ourselves now and the situation which is yet to be. And it is an amazing thing to be able to realize something of the very nature of the heart of the gospel which is being revealed to us here. The reminder to us is that we have found peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of those things that we have now entered into a situation whereby we are at one with God. And in many ways, this chapter brings this out to us and shows us how we have entered into this relationship. But it describes to us as well the coming and the entrance of sin into the world and the ramifications of that. And you can see here that as we look at this particular picture, what we find is that though Adam isn't named as such, it does tell us about the one man and it does tell us, in actual fact, that Adam was a type of him who was to come. In other words, he was similar to Christ in one sense, and he was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in many ways, when you look at this and you ask the question, well, why and how did he become a type of Christ? And why is it that he was a type of Christ? And what you find here is that you get a presentation to us that describes to us the coming into the world of sin and death, coming in via this sin that Adam committed. And yet, we know, don't we? You can read the account back in the book of Genesis that Adam was not the first to sin. Eve, in actual fact, was the first to sin. She looked at the tree and she saw that the, food was, the, the fruit was good for food and to, to be eaten. And she, being tempted of the devil was succumbed and brought into that place whereby she took of the fruit. And then, having taken of the fruit, she then gave it to Adam. Now, you could ask the question, well, where was Adam at this particular time? Was he standing alongside Eve and Eve, as it were, took the, the apple and then gave it and passed it on to him, or the fruit, I should say, shouldn't I? Passed it on to him? Or was it sometime afterwards? having been deceived herself and then taken of the fruit, and then afterwards then embarked upon this position whereby she gave it to Adam. But the implication was not due to Eve's transgression and Eve's sin, but it was specific to Adam. The fact that Adam himself took the fruit and ate of the fruit. And it does tell us, in actual fact, that Adam wasn't deceived. It wasn't like Eve. Eve was deceived, we, we are told, you know, by the serpent, by 
the Satan, as it were, involving this animal in this action. But you find that Adam, as it were, went into that sin with his eyes open. He wasn't blinded or led astray, as it were, into sin. But he knew exactly what he was doing. And the implication was this, that what he did had ramifications and consequences not only for man himself, but they had ramifications for the whole of creation. Because when you read the Genesis account, what you find is that God brought about a curse. He cursed the ground for Adam's sake because of what Adam had done, you know. What do we have today? You know, if you're a keen gardener, you know what it's like, don't you? Weeds grow here, there, and everywhere, struggling all the time. It also had implications for the bearing of children, for women, you know. But it does tell us that this curse was a curse upon the whole of creation itself. And the sad event was this, isn't it? That because of Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden and what he did, he brought about the ruin of paradise itself. He destroyed, as it were, what God himself had originally made. That perfect situation in which Adam was brought into this world, this life that he was living in a perfect environment, this paradise that was there and everything was provided for him. Not only did he enjoy creation itself and all of what God had made, but he was privileged to enjoy God himself. God walked with him in the cool of the evening. God came to him. And this man experienced the very presence of God in that place. But the wonderful thing is this, isn't it? That when you read at the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 22, and it tells us that the curse shall be no more. In other words, paradise was going to be restored. The curse is going to be removed. Creation itself shall be liberated and freed from the bondage of corruption, says Paul in Romans chapter 8. And we shall enter into the liberty of the children of God. Creation shall be freed from the curse of God and shall be set free. So that creation itself is going to enter into a new status and a new condition. In other words, paradise itself is going to be restored. Tells us, doesn't it, that God is going to wipe away all sin, all the effects of sin in this creation. And so here we have it. The reason why this creation is in bondage at this moment of time, and how it is that this creation is going to be liberated from the curse of sin itself. And it's all to do with these two figures, Adam on the one hand and Christ on the other. And Adam sinned, you see. When he sinned, he didn't just sin as an individual. This is what makes this situation. This is why Eve, when she sinned, she sinned as an individual. But Adam, when he sinned, he was to represent all of mankind down through the ages. He is described as our head, as our representative. He is the one that through whom he represented us before God. And when he sinned, the effect of that sin 
came throughout all of mankind. It affected us all. Even here in this 21st century, we are still affected by what Adam did on that day. We are under the curse of God. We are under the judgment of God. We are under the wrath of God because of sin. But you see what Jesus has done is that Jesus has reversed that situation. And the purpose and the plan of Jesus was to restore the paradise that God had originally created. And this is what Paul is dealing with here in many ways. He's dealing with the, the sin that came into the world and death by sin. And the death that passed upon all men. But then he deals with Christ and what Christ has done there dying at Calvary and the effect that it has upon you and upon me as we come before God and what God himself has done for us in Christ and because of Christ. And this lies at the very heart of Romans chapter 5. God himself has dealt with us not according to our sins, but he has dealt with us according to who he is and what he is. And so you see here that what happened in Eden at that, point, at that particular point in time was that when sin came in, we had the entrance of the reign of sin in this world. The reign of sin that had taken possession of this world. Taken possession of man and through that sin, death has come in and death reigns in this world at this particular time. Here you get Paul saying, look, look at what has taken place. Look at what has taken place through the sin of this one man. But you see the, the reign of death and terror of death coming into the world. What did Adam actually do? When you think about what Adam did, what are the privileges that he had in the Garden of Eden? God had said to him, of all the trees in the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat thereof, for on the day in which you eat, you shall surely die. There was a death sentence in that one action. So for Adam, this was suicidal to commit this one sin was to bring about a situation where he was committing suicide at that moment of time. He was going to die. God made it quite explicit and said it quite explicitly that on the day which you eat, you shall surely die. Now, death is not purely physical. Because we read, don't we, that Adam didn't physically die, did he, at that particular time. But what did happen to him was that he died spiritually. Instead of him embracing God as he had done before, walking with God, enjoying the company and presence of God, now what does he do? He avoids God. He hides from God. He doesn't want the company of God any longer. In other words, something had fundamentally happened and changed within his very soul, within his very being. Something had happened to him whereby he himself was now withdrawing from God. He didn't want God any longer. He had died spiritually. Something where he had lost that 
desire and appetite for God. Something had happened within his very soul. Here was death entering in where there had been light and understanding and privilege. Now there was death and destruction that had come in in such a fundamental way that he himself had been changed. And instead of his thoughts and his desires and his aspirations now toward God, he had lost all of that. God, instead of being his friend, now became his enemy, became hostile to God. Suddenly his mind and his thought towards God was perverted because sin had entered in, and his thought and his understanding about God had changed. But if you were to ask the question, why is it that he was suicidal in that sense? You know, you think about people who commit suicide. Why do they commit suicide? I remember hearing a man once uh, preach when I was uh, up in Cardiff. I hadn't long been there. And I went to a, a funeral service and this preacher was getting up to preach. And he was preaching the death of this young man who had committed suicide. You know. And he was sad, you know, because he was talking about this young man, you know, and he had known him for years since he was a little boy and this, that, and the other. And he was telling us you know, about him. And yet, he had gone out and committed suicide. He said, why didn't he come to me? But you see, the thing is this, isn't it? The people commit suicide, why? Because there is something fundamentally wrong in their lives. Something has happened to them that is so bad that brings them into a state of despair and depression, brings them into this very black and dark area that their minds and their thoughts are filled with darkness and despair and discouragement and depression, that they see no other reason or purpose for life. And so they become self-destructive because they don't see any purpose in living. Everything in their life, as it were, is black and dark. But that wasn't the case here, was it? This wasn't the case for Adam. Adam lived in paradise. There was no darkness. It was all glorious and wonderful. He saw creation in a way in which we don't see it now. And he enjoyed creation in a way in which we cannot enjoy it fully now. And yet for all of that, when he was committing that one sin, he was committing a suicidal act. It's tragic when you think about it. He had everything and lost everything at that moment of time. But he lived in paradise. But not only did it affect Adam himself. When you think for a moment, isn't it, who else did it affect? It affected all of us. You know, if we could say that Adam was suicidal in the sense that he was self-destructive, we could say as well he was genocidal, wasn't he? Because it had implications for the whole of mankind. You know, how often do we hear about war crimes where you've got some tyrant and despot who's wanting to destroy some particular people or some group 
of people within his country or wants to destroy another nation. We could think, can't we, of the Holocaust in the Second World War. We could think, you know, of the seven million Jews that were exterminated. We could think of that, and we could think, you know, this was the last resort, as it were, for the German Nazi party at that particular time. We could think of other events, can't we? We could think of the situation in Ukraine. That's almost genocidal, isn't it? You know, rampant death and destruction. No discrimination. Yeah. And you think, you know, why? When you think of, why is it that people do things like that? Well, they do it because of hatred, don't they? They do it because they've got something perhaps historical that brings them to that place where they think they just want to destroy this one particular type of person. But Adam wasn't like that, was he? He couldn't possibly have been thinking in that particular way. But yet his action with genocide was going to destroy the whole of mankind. It was the biggest, the largest genocidal act that has ever taken place. Not only did he sin, but he brought death into the world so that all men died. Every generation, successive generation after generation after generation, people who were born in that state of spiritual death and the consequences of that was physical death. And it was all because of Adam. All because of what he did. That the whole world died when Adam committed that one act. Because here was Adam, he was representing us there in the Garden of Eden, when he sinned, we all, says Paul in here, we all died in Adam. Death came upon us all because of that one action. But worst of all, isn't it? What is the worst kind of death that people commit? Recently we heard of a court case, didn't we, of some woman watching on while her partner was killing her child. Or infanticide as it was, isn't it? Allowing your children to be put to death or being killed by those who were supposed to be protective. And yet, for all of that, you know, the worst thing about this situation was that Adam was not only looking, as it were, genocidally at a, at a situation you know, the whole world was going to die. His family. They were going to be his children. He was the first man. Everybody who was going to come into this world was going to be a descendant of Adam. How must he have looked, you know, when you go from Genesis chapter 3 into Genesis chapter 4, and then you've got Cain and Abel, and we read that Cain killed Abel. Adam must have looked on. He must have been horrified at this situation. These siblings fighting among themselves. Putting to death his brother. What a state. What a condition. And yet for all of that, it was brought in by Adam himself. The sin that he committed. 
But you see, this situation was brought about because of one transaction. And that one sin opened the door and allowed death to come in. And death passed upon us all. But you see here, you know, if we were to end it there, it would be a sad situation. The whole point about the gospel is that the gospel is such a glorious thing, isn't it? That God was not going to allow that to continue, that situation. This is why Paul, when he's talking here, he speaks of Adam as a type of Christ. But then he talks about the fact of what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be in Jesus, what it means to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and what God himself has done for us in Christ. You see, there is a reversal of this situation that Paul starts to talk about here after verse 12. And he starts to talk about Adam on the one hand and then Christ on the other hand. And the implication of belonging to Adam in that he sinned and death came in through his sin and death passed upon us all. But now in Christ, there is a complete reversal of that situation. If we can say like this, that what Adam did in the Garden of Eden brought about the reign of terror and of death, what Christ did at Calvary brought about the reign of grace and of life. And this is what the Apostle is talking about when you read through this particular chapter. In verse 17, it tells us, isn't it? For if by one man's offense, death reigned through the one much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. That's the amazing fact. This is what has taken place. This is the event that has transferred and transformed all things in what Jesus himself has done. And this is what is so glorious about this particular chapter because it reveals to us the significance of what Jesus did for us at Calvary. And what God has done. For what God has done for you and for me is that he has conferred upon us a gift. And that gift, says the apostle here, is the gift of righteousness. It's a gift. It's not something that can be earned. It's not something that you and I can, as it were, gather together all our efforts and all our energy. And we think to ourselves, well, you know, what I want to do is to merit salvation, to come before God and say to God, look, this is what I've done. Look at all the things that I've done and achieved. <coughs> what you find is that in the Gospels where you get Jesus, isn't it, giving a parable, and he says about two men going up to the temple to worship. The one was a Pharisee, the other one was a tax collector. And you know the story, didn't you? You know, the one goes up and he... You know, he's full of his own pride and his own significance and importance and he walks up the front and he stands there and he tells God of all his achievements and what he does. And then you've got this other guy there, he's right at the back, would never dare to walk down the front. And what is his, what is his plea? His plea was this, isn't it? It was the simplest of all prayers. God have mercy upon me, a sinner. God have mercy upon me. He didn't come claiming any merit. He didn't come claiming any, anything that he had done or any effort that he had put into anything for God. 
he just looked at himself like in the sight of God and before God, what am I? I am a poor, wretched sinner. And when I come before God and I look at what God is and who God is, I realize what I am. And as I contemplate what I am in the presence of God, I realize what I need from God. I need God's mercy. I need God to have compassion upon me. I need God to forgive my sin. I come before him with all my guilt and all that sense of what I have done, the sin that is within me. And when I come before God, what is my plea? Oh, God, have mercy. There is no other plea but to plead the mercy of God. And what does God do? God says to us, look, you're a poor, wretched sinner. You've got nothing, absolutely nothing, to merit any favor with me. But let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you this gift. It's a free gift. You don't earn it. You don't have to do any achievements for it. But I give it to you free of charge. And it is this gift of righteousness. Now, the whole point is this, isn't it? That if sin merits judgment and death, when Adam was righteous, when he was created righteous in the image of God, he had his own righteousness. But as soon as he sinned and he became unrighteous, he was condemned in the sight of God. But what merits this is the fact that God gives us a free gift of righteousness and the consequence of that is life. If sin merits death and righteousness merits right life and this free gift that God gives to us, this free gift of righteousness also confers upon us lasting life. This is what God gives to us free of charge. It is a gift. It's not something that you merit. It's the wonderful thing that God is such a generous God that he gives us this particular gift that makes us accepted before him. You see, some people have a hard view of God, don't they? They think of God as being a hard taskmaster and they have hard thoughts in their minds when they think about God, you know, they look at the world and they say, oh, what kind of God can he be and, and all of this. But the whole point is this, isn't it? When you come before God, what kind of God is he? You see, what has God done for mankind? Sent his son to die. You see, these things that are conferred upon us, isn't it? Are conferred upon us because of what Jesus has done. He has done this for us, he says. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Death was reigning. Death has been dethroned. Now grace is enthroned. Life is being administered and given out through this gift that God confers upon us. If you read in verses 6 to 8 here, you see, you see what God has done. It says, For when we were still without strength, 
In due time Christ died for the ungodly, for scarcely for a righteous man one will die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But Christ, the God, demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Isn't this an amazing thing? That because of God's love, God's intervention, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were opposed to God, and as the apostle will go on to say, isn't it, that what has taken place is that we have been reconciled to God. We have been brought into that place where God embraces us and takes us into his own family. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, he says, look, Adam committed one sin. The effect of that was that death came upon the whole world. But now we commit many sins. But yet when God confers this righteousness upon us, all sin is forgiven. Where sin was abounding, where we were committing all kinds of different acts and things and doing all kinds of things that we shouldn't have been doing, Yet grace abounded much more. It outstripped our sin. You see, when you think of God and what God does, you look at what he is saying here. It's true, he says, who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness. In other words, God extends to us this abundant grace. He confers it upon us even though we have sinned time upon time upon time. God in his infinite mercy comes to us and by his sovereign grace forgives us all our sin and embraces us in Christ. And in order for us to know it, he has demonstrated it for us in Christ dying at Calvary. We look at that and we see the love of God and here is the change, here is the transformation, here is that final one act where Christ dies at Calvary and here is the beginning of the reversal of all of what Adam did in the Garden of Eden. And so what you see is that God confers grace to us. He looks upon us, not in all the sin that we have committed, but oh, he comes to us. And in that sovereign act of grace, he imparts this gift of righteousness. He embraces us in Christ. He gives to us life, and not only life, but eternal life that is to be in this new paradise, in this new creation of God, that you and I will enjoy that. And enjoying that means enjoying God. So you see it here. That at this particular point in time, you say, well, you know, how do I know, you know, do I belong to this category of people who have received this gift, whom God has shown abundance of grace? What is the effect that that has upon me? And the effect that it has upon us is this, 
that we rejoice. There is real joy and real rejoicing in our hearts and in our souls. As you can see in verse 2, isn't it? Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And what happens? And rejoice in hope of God. In other words, our eyes have been opened. The darkness has been removed. We have this new hope that has come to us through Jesus Christ. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the time when we shall be in his presence, be in that new creation, in his new paradise. And we rejoice in that hope. We are living in anticipation that this is where our destiny lies. That we are going to be with him. In verse 11, it says the same, doesn't it? Or virtually the same. Not only that, he says, but we also... ...receive the reconciliation. In other words, you know, what we contemplate as we come tonight, are we rejoicing, are we thanking God, are we praising God for all of what he has done for us in Christ? We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What has he done for us? It is his blood... That's been shed. It's his life. He was executed there. For you and for me. And so we rejoice. We rejoice in the hope that is to come. We rejoice in God at this moment of time. We know something that is more substantial than all of what the world has to offer us. And that is this hope of glory. Let me just come to a conclusion and tell you that God does not want us to live in fear. He does not want us to live in doubt. He does not want us to live in such a state and in such a condition whereby we fear death and we fear what's beyond the grave. But he wants us to know with absolute certainty that this is ours. In Christ. And this is why Paul says in verse 5, Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out or shed abroad in our hearts by that Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Holy Spirit given unto his people, into his church, to you and I, as his children, that his love might be made manifest within us by the presence and by the power of his indwelling Spirit who gives to us a foretaste of what we can anticipate to receive when we enter into that new paradise, God's love shed abroad within our very being, that we might experience it, that we might be certain, and we might have absolute assurance that we are the people of God. And if we have that, what can ever stop us from rejoicing? Rejoicing in God, rejoicing in Christ, rejoicing in the hope of glory. What can stop us? We are unstoppable because his love has been demonstrated at Calvary, has been demonstrated within us. And we have absolute confidence and absolute certainty of who we are and where we're going. 
And if that's us, isn't it, what are we doing? We are looking back to Jesus. To what he has done for us. For the life that he lived, the death that he offered there at Calvary, or the life that he offered there at Calvary in death. And we can say, hallelujah, what a savior, can't we? And we can rejoice. We don't have to fear. But we know the certainty of our salvation. And if his love has been shed abroad in our hearts by that Holy Spirit that has been given unto us, we know that we have peace with God. Reconciliation has taken place. We're no longer enemies of God. But God has come and embraced us, taken us into his family.